everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I'm black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, a show about seeing race in media and entertainment through a brown and black lens. Well, welcome to episode 10 of the Brown and Black Podcast. Mike Sargent, we got to the whole number. <laughs> we got into the double digit episode the double number. Double digits, yes. You know, it's interesting. I feel like this we should celebrate. We should but, celebrate. But there's no restaurants. There's yeah. no way of really Ooh. celebrating. Well, since we're going to virtually celebrate, we should have a virtual cocktail. So, uh, yeah. Hand me that. I'll take two more olives, please. Thank you. <laughs> well, today our guest is the mayor of Stockton, California, Michael Tubbs, who also has an HBO documentary premiering uh, on July 28th. We'll talk to him in just a little bit. Uh, but before we talk to Mr. Tubbs, uh, Mike, how has your week been, my friend? There are people who tell me that during this time that they don't want to pay attention to the news, that it's just too much, it's too taxing, you know? It and is. I, I, I've gone through days where I'm so fatigued from, like, morning to, like, evening. Right. I'm just addicted to it. But, dude, it's it's not necessarily... I, th- I think all of this absorption of news, there's a value to it because I'm trying to understand the world. And there's really no way you can do that through not ignoring the news completely. So I'm reading writers, poets, scholars, just trying to get a sense of where we are, how we got here, and where we're going. I could give you a list of science fiction films that will tell you exactly how we got here. But reading what's going on right now in this country, on this planet, where we have been positioned in America as you know, pretty much the stupidest citizens on the planet in terms of how they we've politicized. Yeah, it's become evident that it, we're a stupid country. Man. We're a pretty stupid country. And, and it's like sort of we've taken that for granted. We've always known the educational system is better in other countries. We've always known that. You always hear people from Europe saying, oh, wow, my goodness. I was speaking to a filmmaker recently, and, and she was from Germany, and she talked about how she came here when she was like in the ninth grade or eighth grade and they put her, she, she had just finished eighth grade. They put her in ninth grade because they thought she was a little ahead. And she said what she was learning there, she had learned what in what was the equivalent of fourth, fifth grade. And wow. it just, you know, we're a nation that college has not always been affordable. If we're, let's say, four years behind, four or five years behind educational systems of the rest of the planet, that means most people are walking around in this country with uh, what, a uh, seventh or eighth grade education? So it's no wonder we're in the place we are and, and people embrace ignorance. I think that was all by design, though, Mike. Uh, would you I, see, d- dude, yes. Even your fatigue of media consumption is by design. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think that the design of making us stupid is deliberate, it's intentional. When you have uh, blacks and browns being intellectualized who do you think fears that dude i I agree a thousand percent as a matter of fact there's a reason why they didn't want slaves to read so you know knowledge it's (laughs) right and that's like a real historical fact it's an absolute fact the older you get the more you realize cliches are actually wisdom knowledge is power and and if you have a like you said if if by design not just are we not so educated, not so aware, not so informed, but kept 
uninformed, fed a steady diet of people know more about Kanye's latest exploit than they than they do about things that are happening politically that affect them. I totally agree with you, man. I think there's major issues with representation in the media, the government, in corporate America, you know, for the most part. They need employees. So the more stupid we are, the more much of an employee mindset we're going to have as opposed to an employer mindset, you know? If everybody's smart, Mike, then who's going to work for the smart guy too? Well, I don't <laughs> want to go too far down there, down that path, but let's just say, not only are you correct, but I think it goes into representation. You, you know, you mentioned what's happening. In my opinion, representation is everything. You know, we talked a few weeks back about Netflix and that $100 million that they're going to invest on these black banks, and that wouldn't be happening if... That person of color was not in the room to say something, you know, and so if they were not there to, quote unquote, represent, it wouldn't happen. So representation is one of those things that we can talk about and it's a topic, but it is deeper and more powerful than anything because it influences every aspect of not just our past, our perception of the past, our future and our perception of who we are today. Correct, man. You know, interesting. I've had an interesting week as well. Um, I recently got, this is the second little blow up I have on Twitter. (laughs) I don't know, man. Maybe it's just that uh, there's a rebellious side that's beginning to reveal itself, you know, with me. And I'm having many more discussions uh, with people on Twitter regarding particular things, you know. Uh, one of those was a story that Rafael Bernal, who's a reporter at The Hill, um, I've had him on my Highly Relevant podcast before, and we had a good conversation you know, back then, but this time he put out a tweet regarding that the Smithsonian is planning and having discussions uh, very soon on whether they're going to make a Latino museum. Now, I had responded on Twitter, and you guys could check it out, it said, Jack Rico Official. Um, where I responded, I was like, you know what? I don't know how much history uh, Hispanics have in this country to actually make a museum that's worthy of the African-American Museum, which is heralded as one of the best museums in terms of the African-American story uh, out there. There isn't that much information. John Leguizamo himself says it. Look at the, all the textbooks. Where Where is our history? So for me to make that question, it elicited a response from a guy named Eli Magana. And he said to me that uh, that my question of whether we have enough history here in America to create a Latino museum was ignorant and arrogant. Whoa. Now, you know I'm not ignorant. And you also know I'm not arrogant. He goes, obviously, you're not Mexican-American. So I was Whoa. like, wow, interesting. So I wrote back because I thought it elicited also me responding. I usually don't. I don't like conflict, right? And I don't like going toe-to-toe, but something's happening to me where I don't mind doing that now. And I decided to respond, and I said, look, man, you could have stopped being so hostile. You could have achieved the same thing, but just saying it differently. That's it. Just say it differently, man. Let's have a discussion about it. And he kind of backed off and said, look, I didn't mean you, but I meant the statement. And I go, Okay, so what should I do differently? And he was like, you should, you know, pick up a couple of these books. And they were mostly like Chicano, Mexican-American books. And that brought up this whole question about how much do I really know about Hispanic history overall in this country? Mm. Not just Hispanic history in our own Latin American countries, like, you know, what's happening in the Caribbean with the Dominican. In order to understand the Dominican community, I always thought you needed to understand the Dominican Republic. 
But there is that assimilation that occurs here where there is a separation. Mexican and Mexican-Americans. We spoke to George Lopez about this. He can't go to Mexico City and do his tour there. They'll boo him out. Same thing with Puerto Ricans from Puerto Rico and New Yorkans. As soon as the American factor, that quotient comes in, you are no longer pure Latino. You've Americanized yourself to the point that you're American. You're not, you might look like us, but you don't talk like us. And so there's been that rift between the Latin American and the Latin American American version of them. And I said, you know what? I'm going to start trying to understand and, and research more the history of the United States Hispanic, the Robert Rodriguez, you know, the Jack Ricos, as opposed to my mom and dad's history. So, I mean, it's good to know that. But now that I wanted to do this, I started thinking, well, how much have we done in this country? And most of it has to do with Mexican-Americans. Most of the United States, I think a third of the United States, not even half of it, used to be Mexican territory. I started watching all these documentaries. I watched a documentary called... um, LA Originals. It's on Netflix. Talks about these two Chicanos, Esteban Oriol and Mr. Cartoon, a tattoo artist. Dude, what a great, great documentary on two Latinos that have influenced and shaped the hip hop game, the tattoo game. So I said, there's contribution in the United States into pop culture and business and and other parts that are non-Latino. So I was like, you know what? If I continue at this rate, then I can really start looking at what should be in that Latino museum that would be kind of freaking cool. Like the 2000 explosion of music that happened here in America with Ricky Martin, J-Lo, Enrique Iglesias, and Pitbull. We do have enough, and I want to be able to talk a lot more about that, you know, um, in in the weeks and months to come. Wow. Well, you bring up so many great things. As an African-American, as a black person, you know, you're many things when you're a person of color in America, because America, none of us are really indigenous, even though if we're born here, none of us, none of us, our history is indigenous to America unless we're Native American. And you're actually part Native American. So that, that, you know, you know, you're an exempt from that. But I never hear this term used. I never hear the term the Latin diaspora. You know, black people have embraced the diaspora that we come from all these different countries, that we were divided, that all of that, with the core being Africa. I don't hear that term, the Latin diaspora, the the, the Latino diaspora, because I know so many Latinos. I know the conflict that Latinos have and how one group doesn't like the other group and this group doesn't want to be associated with that group. And it's interesting because as you were talking, I'm realizing a museum would have to be laid out in a way where... You know, you start one place and you see how it's branched off, the food, the language, the culture. What does it mean to be a Latino? The sub, the Hispanic, the Chicano. I think black folks definitely have still got work to do in their own unification, blacks. But the browns, definitely, especially the Latino browns, definitely have work to do on that unification. And and what you bring up, I think, amazing because to put together a museum like that, the board would have to be representative of the Latin diaspora that exists within America. There are some scary numbers coming out of newsrooms all across America about um, how many, the ratio between the population of the city of Latinos and how many Latinos are in positions of leadership in the media that shapes and influences how we feel about 
our environment, about people.、Uh, when all you see are brown and black people being jailed, what do you think that most and brown black people are? Criminals, thugs, and that's where I grew up, and I don't want to see that anymore. And if my contribution to this conversation on a national level is stop showing us in a negative light, then man, I have to do something about it. You know, in this podcast and many other projects that you know I'm doing and we're doing together, is about shutting that down. And how do we create more image representation uh, uh, through that? And so I think a Latino museum, man. You know, now that I'm really thinking about it, it's. Crucial, Mike, to have some sort of home, an umbrella, where we're not fucking invisible. George Clooney said that on the Hollywood Reporter when he was interviewed once about race in Hollywood and the Academy Awards and the Oscars. So white, he's like, "You think black people have gotten it bad? You should look at Hispanics." What you're saying is so strong because relating it back to everything that this show is about. You know the intersection between race and pop culture. Race, and how race is interpreted, is interpreted through pop culture. How we view, you know, how someone feels. Your words to that journalist or that that fan of of the guy you were you were interacting with. Your words stung that person because it represented something much larger than what you were saying in that moment. It was yours was more of like a question, like, "Well, what have we really done?" His came from this place of, "My God, that's our problem that you don't know what we've done." And like you said, that invisibility, I think that's at the core. Okay, we're invisible except for this representation and that representation, and maybe sometimes that one. And that's one way in which I think both black and brown people can completely unify that we are not we are underrepresented and not represented in the ways that serve us best. And look, unlike the African American community where there's a racial solidarity, we don't really have that. And I think one of the reasons, Mike, look, I'm being very provocative here by saying this, but I think it needs to start. I think we need to start having the conversation: Do we abolish? The word Hispanic. That's an interesting, interesting conversation. Now let me let me give you why I came up with this like a few days ago, where I was thinking, well, what is what is the problem? Why can't we team up amongst the Hispanics to move forward? And a lot of it is because there a lot of us are so different. We come from so many different cultures, and I think in America, people like to compartmentalize people, absolutely things. Absolutely. I, you're too complicated, so I'm going to ignore you until you become a little bit more simpler to to understand.、Uh, until you fit into this representation that I've seen and understand. Right. And in the Nixon era, the term Hispanic was born because there was just, you know, how do you take 27 to 32 countries, including the Caribbean, and put them all in under one umbrella? That's what they decided to do because each one individually is too much. Have a four-five-page census paperwork of who are you? <laughs> Go through five pages and find yourself, as opposed to Hispanic, because if we're having a problem unifying because of the word, because people are starting to feel、uh, burdened by the word that they're not being seen because the word is so ambiguous, then screw it, get rid of it, and start targeting people from specific countries. In America, two things. You know, the Latino journalists coming together, needing to be able to, in my opinion, 
represent, contextualize things that are happening in the media. The way a, you know, Reuters, Trump orders voting districts to exclude people in U.S. illegally. Okay, that's a very nice, soft way of saying Trump once again targets Latinos and wants to invalidate their existence in this country. So how's about we get into the news? Times, the Latino journalists of the LA Times, 80 Latino journalists, essentially penned an open letter for a better newsroom representation. And in it, they had a bunch of demands, man. And it was very interesting. Let me kind of just read a couple of them. First, they stand in solidarity with the Black Caucus. What that showed me right off the bat is that there is a brown and black unity, Mm -hmm. which is what this podcast is about. And we're now starting to see it pour over more and more. I sent you a video of that LA Originals clip where Snoop Dogg is talking about the 1992 riots. Yes. And how black and brown people united. And that Bush's administration and the LA Police Department did not like those two groups getting together. They want the newspaper to stop treating Latinos as a minority group. And to be a part of their online stories, images, podcasts, the LA Times studio projects. So what I'm starting to see here is that the newspaper is really a white newspaper where Latino journalists and black journalists are compliments to the newspaper. They're not an afterthought, but they're compliments. Yet Latino journalists are saying, we've won about two or three Pulitzer Prize in the last 20 years or so. Three. Three. And... Who do you think helped those Pulitzer Prize come to the LA Times? Us, us Latinos. Yet you pay a shit. You don't really promote our stories. You don't promote anything we do, really. And then you ask us to be translators for a lot of your stories because you're, you're going to places that are Latino, but you're not bringing a Latino with you. What this shows me ultimately and overall is that the system is rigged against us. It's confirmed. I mean, there's just no other way of looking at it. You know, oh, if you work hard enough and you uh, try to make it, maybe one day you'll be very successful. Dude, there's no excuse to have a city that is 50% Latino and have a newsroom that's 5%. We recently spoke to Jamie Osorio, who is the star of Telemundo's novella Celia, Celia Cruz, uh, which is the first African, not African, Afro-Latina that has been the main story of a novella on Spanish language TV. Ever. Jamie it plays young Celia and out of Peacock's 35 shows from Telemundo that they have on their new streaming app, the only show of color is Celia's. So we had a chance to have her on the show and here's what she said about image representation on Spanish language television. I think it has to do with the storytelling. I think it has to do that now that we are creating more platforms, it's about, right now we took this, the story of Celia Cruz, which was an icon of music. Why not let's start creating stories about black people? Let's go to the auditions. Let's start believing that we can get any role, even if they're not looking for black people. And you know what? I know you're not looking for me, and I know you're not looking for a black girl, but this is what I have to bring. 
And if this is my essence, and this is what you're looking for, you're not going to see this. You're going to see the whole picture. Here's an actress that should have been getting a lot more work in the last five years since this was shot, but she's not. And even if you said, oh, well, you know, that's because so-and-so yeah. is bigger. What roles would she have gotten? And what I like about what you said, it's really all about the storytelling. If you have more people writing stories of Afro-Latinos and their celebrations and their achievements, then we can actually start creating and hiring actors of color to inhabit those stories. And let's go further back. Okay, so to create those Afro-Latino characters, that would mean there would have to be right. an Afro-Latino yes. in the yes. writer's room that says, yes, yes, hello, hello, we exist, hello. It says a lot to me that they reached back and asked yeah, her. it's kind of messed up. Like, you got your 35 shows that are all white Latinos. Yes. And then you have the one black show. It's like, well, we are in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement. Why don't you just put them in there? How... How opportunistic yes. by Telemundo to do something like that, man, right? And I get it. It's it's strategy, so it doesn't come back to, oh, you see, we, we... I go, yeah, but you could have had her on any other time. Well, I can't do the math, but one in 35 is a pretty low percentage. If, if you're into uh, how racism also affects, you know, Latin America and the Caribbean, check out Celia. It, it's, it's all there, but from a different perspective, a, a Latino perspective of racism as well. All right, Mike, so why don't you talk to me about the second story you sent me? It's on The Atlantic, and I didn't even want to read it because I kind of wanted to hear from you and react accordingly. The story is this. There is a judge who is going to be presiding over a case, let's just say a very deeply controversial case, and her son was killed. And the person who is most likely to have done it is a man named Roy Den Hollander. He describes himself as an anti-feminist attorney. Now, the fact that there could be such a thing just says everything about <laughs> says everything about America. Okay, he also called himself a Trump volunteer. Now, he's a man who, after this judge, her name is Esther Salas, and that's what's important. Esther Salas. She's a Latina. Her twenty-year-old son was killed in an attack, okay, on their home, and her husband was wounded. They later found Den Hollander dead of a self-inflicted, so he kills himself after he goes and kills her. But he did a 2,028-page collection of writings that he posted in one year, in 2019. And in it, I'm going to read to you a quote from those 2,028 pages of writings. This is a attorney anti-feminist attorney, a white man. Female judges didn't bother me as long as they were middle-aged or older black ladies. What was that all about? He was talking about a lawsuit that went before Judge Salas. The first, let me emphasize, Hispanic woman appointed as a federal judge in New Jersey. The very first, this is 2019. They seemed to have an understanding of how life worked and were not about to be conned by any foot-dragging lawyers. Latinas, however were usually a problem driven by an inferiority complex. 
that's not the only Latina that he was against. He also attacked Justice Sotomayor, saying she was 52 years old, prime age for a feminazi. Okay, so he calls her a witch, a Nazi loon, another malevolent female. Now, why would this white man have so much animosity for someone like him to do what he did? And this is the scary part of you ask how I was doing at the very beginning of the show, reading articles like this and what's what's happening with Trump and all the things that he's doing and all the ways, you know, planning to send out these forces and these federal agents into New York and Chicago and all that, all this uber fascism that seems like we're in a science fiction movie that's going on. All of that is going on. But as much as we absorb, you know, whether we get it from social media After a while, you read enough, you see enough, you start to just have impressions of the world. You start to see the world a certain way. The more you look at, the broader your perspective. Of course, if the more you look at the same thing, your perspective just strengthens. But here's the thing. I'm reminded, are you familiar with the boiling frog fable? The boiling frog fable is that if you put a frog suddenly into boiling water, he'll jump out. But if you put a frog in just regular water and then you slowly bring it to a boil... He will not perceive the danger and he will be cooked to death. Here's how I look at it. With Trump being so blatant with his bias has encouraged those with bias to become blatant. Okay. Like this guy who did his 2028 page diascribe. But at the same time, that blatancy has come under fire. You know, we're in the Black Lives Movement. While we have the most racist president of all, we're in the Black Lives Movement. But the infinity loop of this is that racism and biases, those flames are being fanned. But meanwhile, and an awareness has increased. And those who are outraged are even more outraged and, and empowered and feel that they should come up against this. We normalize it. And I think this is a time to That's no it. longer normalize things. That's why you see... That's We need to jump yeah, out of the which water. Which is why we're doing so. this podcast, which is why Latinos are rising, mm-hmm. which is why, you know, Black Lives Matter movement matters it's just funny how white people are so offended by the fact that there's a rise emergence no longer being tolerant of the abuse well we need to keep abusing you because that's how i grew up and because that's how i grew up it must be right and i don't want to change those dynamics of hating on you for the rest of my life and why should they change their perspective they have no incentive no incentive outside of moral now you see that's something you said early on that i have to touch upon before we even go to our very special guest who who is changing representation and that is you know you talked about being corrupted i don't know if you saw what happened in ohio there was a house speaker and four others were arrested in a 60 million dollar bribery case Here's the thing. You live in a society where people aren't that educated. Not everybody's got the opportunity. The people in power, the higher echelons, money, money represents everything. You know, we discussed like what is the American dream, whether it's the Latino American dream, the African American dream, the white American dream is to be rich, to have money. $60 million. How much could you be corrupted for $60 million? And because Everything revolves around money. It's not like, oh, you know, we live in a society where everybody is trying to attain enlightenment. No, everybody's trying <laughs> to get true. rich. Okay. <laughs> 60 Especially <laughs> in America, man. Especially in America. And unfortunately, black and brown people are bought into the same thing. So all I'm saying is it's very hard to not be corrupted, I think, by money. When we live in a society that that's what we idolize, that is religion. The separation between church and state, maybe that happened. 
of separation between money and state. We always talk about consumerism. We talk about being a capitalist society. There it is. Fascinating stuff, man. I mean, we can go on and on about this. And I think somebody who has something to say about this is our next guest. of Stockton, California, Michael Tubbs, who has a new HBO documentary called Stockton on My Mind, which premieres on HBO Max on July 28th. Mayor Tubbs, thank you for being on the Brown and Black podcast. Thank you so much for having me. How did the HBO documentary Stockton on My Mind come together with you as the main subject? The director, Mark Levin, had been looking at Stockton since 2013 when I was on city council. He was really interested in exploring sort of the city's post-bankruptcy recovery. Um, but that project never panned out. And then he heard I was elected mayor. He saw some of the things we were doing with basic income and violence reduction programs. And he decided to come back and try to shoot the film in Stockton, but with a different lens to just talk about sort of what's it like to be a young person in office and, and what is it like to kind of lead a community into tackling these challenging issues. So Mark reached out. At first, I was actually hesitant because eight years ago, there's a documentary done when I was running for city council. So I was like, that's enough. <laughs> but we had a <laughs> right. conversation and, and I told him, I said, well, if you're going to do it, it can't just be about me. You have to really highlight the people of the community and you have to tell the story in a way that isn't victimizing, that isn't like poverty porn, but to really focus on the resilience of my community. And he agreed to do that. And that's how the project was born. Having sat on the city council and now being the mayor and, and implemented so many amazing programs and things, could you speak on the importance of being in the room, just being in the room when things are happening, when decisions are being made and representing? Yeah, that's my thank you for that question. That's literally my whole frame. I don't particularly like government. I don't particularly like being in meetings all the time, but I do love having agency and being in the room when decisions happen. Even when I was a kid, I used to get really frustrated when things would happen. And I didn't know why they happened or how they happened. And I had no say in how, <laughs> in how and why they happened, particularly if they impact me. And I think in college, after studying the civil rights movement and realizing that the organizing and protests are super important and that has to be a role, but that there's also a role for people to make those protests into policy and to be in the room when those decisions are made. Um, so I made a decision back then that to somehow find a way to be involved in the policy room. At first, I thought it would be as like a staffer for someone or a leader of some sort of policy think tank. I never thought about me being the elected official, but I'm, I'm obsessed with being part of the people who get to cook the meal and serve and serve the dish. Because I just don't like when I'm Monday morning quarterback, I don't like second guessing if I didn't do anything to help influence the decision. Stockton was known as one of the poorest, most violent and least literate cities in the nation. How did you devise a strategy to get Stockton out of that situation? You talk so much about resilience. How did you do it? First of all, I'm surrounded by a really good team of folks who are smart and thinking and are, and are helpful and leading. And I think it was a mix of sort of personal experience in terms of what worked for me. Um, coming from Stockton, walking these same streets, going to the same schools, and also some of the stuff I learned at, at Stanford where I got my master's and bachelor's, and then also learning from the community as a council member and sitting in people's living rooms and dining rooms and community centers, hearing from them how they thought about their city. And from all that, 
it became really apparent that one of the biggest issues was poverty and that we had to do everything we could to attack poverty, but we also needed to reduce crime and violent crime in particular. We also needed to provide more opportunity for our students. And then with that frame, spent a year during my last year of city council just looking at and traveling to other cities and looking at what they had done, whether it's the Pittsburgh Promise, which is a scholarship program in Pittsburgh, or the Harlem Children's Zones in Harlem, and just really learning from other cities, other groups, and then talking with my team in Stockton about, okay, how do we make this Stockton specific? So we have a long way to go, but the foundations were really formed in conversations with community members as a 24-year-old city council person part-time and figuring out what can we do and how far could we go. As a black man, as an African-American, as a person of color in this country, you know, there are a lot of labels, images, representations of you from the time you're a child throughout your adult life. How important, uh, you know, you know, Ayanna Van Zant said something very powerful. She said a man is who his mother makes him. But for you, not having a specific father figure in your life that was like you or like you would want to be. How important is representation in seeing, not just being in the room, but seeing others who are in the room? Because I see you interacting, going into schools, talking with the youth. Can you talk on that a little bit? A hundred percent. I remember growing up and, and I remember praying. I said, God, if you help me make it, I promise you, no kid where I am will have to wonder <laughs> if they can make it. I'll do everything in my power to be that representation because I think it's one thing to be told you can do it, but until you see a flesh and blood example, it, it remains abstract and not real. Mm. So being mm. something that folks mm. can touch and critique and yell at and listen to and see, I think makes it makes it more accessible. Like city tubs, that's city government. Okay, I, I have a better understanding of what that is. And I also could see myself there, whether I choose to be there or not. And I think to the point about my father, I was so lucky in that my mom, my aunt and grandmother weren't perfect, but did the best they could to provide love and support and some measure of stability. And I think they were able not to replace, but they were able to do enough so that it didn't feel like a huge gap and, and a huge loss. But representation is incredibly important, particularly, as you said, when all the messages about who you are and who people like you are, are rooted in deficits, are rooted in being an athlete or being a rapper, which aren't bad things, but there are bad, that's the totality of how we're represented when some of us want to be politicians, some of us want to be lawyers, some of us want to be engineers, et cetera. Economic equality is the bedrock for uplifting deprived communities. How do we close the racial wealth gap and are black banks the way out? If not, then what is? I think it's a it's a answer that requires a variety of solutions. So I think the first thing we have to do to attack the wealth gap is to deal with some of the income issues. So I think a guaranteed income is, is a first step. And then we also know through um, research and analysis that things like baby bonds that are targeted and tiered based off income are a big help in closing the black-white wealth gap within a generation or two generations. I think we have to look at black banks and also kind of home ownership policies and understanding how so much of the wealth of this country is derived from home ownership. And when you have like the subprime mortgage crisis, which targeted black folks and brown folks to get these crazy loans with high interest rates to get be foreclosed upon and lose sometimes their life savings, which was their down payment, that we have to have policies targeted around sort of home ownership for black communities that, that we need to close the gap with. And I think the conversation we're even having now around reparations is a step in that direction and understanding that 
although none of us were here 400 years ago for the 200 years of, of, of chattel slavery in this country, all of us live in a world, in a country, and a country whose wealth and economic power has been built upon that foundation, and that there has to be a serious discussion around sort of what exactly can we do? Well, first, I think we have to have a conversation around do we want is it okay to have such a wide wealth gap um, in, in this country? Right. I think a lot of people are actually comfortable with that. <laughs> so I think that's the first question we have to ask. And if we say it's not, then we have to have all options on the table, including studying reparations, including home ownership, including... The last thing I'll say, I came across a stat that was interesting that said that even black people with a college degree have less wealth than white people with a high right. school diploma. Yeah. And that's because wealth is accumulated. It's generational. It's not something that happens in one day. It's something that is accumulated over many, many years. And you have policies like the Homestead Act and the GI Bill that created wealth and gave things to um, to mostly white people in this country. Um, I think the government has to play a similar role in providing opportunity for people to build wealth like they have historically for other groups. Very often people show the what. There's poverty, there's this, there's crime, but they don't talk about the why. And one of the things that you show is once you look at what the why is, then you can start attacking the problem. So can you speak a little bit on that? Yeah, I think the, the why animates from not just my personal story, but the personal story of, of my constituents and realizing mm -hmm. that the why that's prominently held isn't true. That folks aren't struggling economically because they're lazy, because they're dumb, because they don't want to work and because they make bad financial decisions. Folks are struggling economically in a large part because the economy just isn't working. The fact that even during this pandemic, I read yesterday that Jeff Bezos made $13 billion in mm -hmm. one day. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I'm not hating on Jeff Bezos. Make your money. I am hating, though, on a country that allows him to make $13 billion when people are starving and our essential workers right. are unable to pay for rent and there's gonna be millions of evictions if we have 13 million evictions if, if we don't act so i think that's kind of what where our focus and frame comes from and i think that i remember watching the michael jordan documentary and yeah. how at yeah. every scene he kept saying this was personal to me and my staff laughed because they said that's what you say and it's true that every time we're doing something it is personal if we're gonna take this heat if we're gonna be yelled at if we're gonna put in the long hours it has to be personal because if it's not, let's just not do it. And personal, not in terms of this impacts me personally, but personal in terms of this is an affront to me. Like I, this is against who we, what I, what I stand for, what the community stands for. So I think that gives us the courage to be bold because it is personal, whether we're talking, particularly, and I love the frame of this podcast, Black Brown, because that's what we have to do in Stockton. My city is 40% Latino and 10% Black. So a lot of my conversations are black brown and about taking everything personal, whether it's police violence, whether it's um, immigration raids, whether it's even just, just this morning I had a call with the Catholic bishop because it's personal to me that 60% of all of our COVID cases in my city are the Latino yeah, yeah. community. Um, so I think the issue is that politics has to be personal. It has to be visceral. I think that's the only way we'll get the solutions at the scale of the problems we see. One of the reasons that Mike and I decided to do this was exactly for brown-black unity. I want to hear your thoughts on how do we empower brown and black youth 
to reach political office and be politically ambitious and change our cities and states to create a better world, how do, how do we empower that? Part of it is giving them examples. Part of it is exposure. Part of it is training and supporting connecting the dots. Because I know growing up, my family's not, as you saw in the film, it's not a political family. Like most of my family's interaction with government has actually been really negative. So government wasn't something people were rushing to do. Government wasn't something where we said, oh, we could be that. It was always this impersonal force that was making life harder for us. And I think what switched it for me was when I got to college. And I no, in high school, in high school, I, I did a lot of stuff with like the Youth Advisory Commission, like the Youth City Council. It was in that work, I saw that government wasn't this impersonal force. But just a bunch of people, some who were smart and some who were not. <laughs> it was literally like regular. Mm-hmm. Like, sounds, mm-hmm. It was so revolutionary of a concept for me. And I did it again when I w- interned in the White House, the same thing. I was like, yo, these are just people. These are just people <laughs> who are making decisions. But they're literally people like me. Like they made this decision because they didn't eat breakfast or they got into it with their partner or they're tired. You know, like, and that was my eye opening for me. And that's when I realized, like, I don't have to just complain about it. I could actually be one who governs. And I think Michelle Obama talks about this when she says that she's been at all the tables with some of the most powerful people in the world. And all of them ain't that smart. And I think that was the biggest thing for me is learning that, at the very least, I'm just as smart as the folks who are doing what's happening now. Like, look what's right. happening now. I, I can't be worse, right? I'm probably a little <laughs> worse. Right. <laughs> and that was the, so. I think t- talking to our youth about that. That no, like, look who like these folks here aren't. They don't have it all together. They're actually not even smarter than you in most cases. And you actually have a lot to bring to the table. I want to know if you could talk a little bit about thinking outside the box and then and risk because there's always a risk tied to thinking outside the box or doing something outrageous. At one point in the documentary, you ask your staff, come up with some crazy idea, hit me with something crazy, but then you run with it. So I tell my staff all the time, we don't just be taking risks just to take risks. That, that there's a criterion we have to go through to decide if risk is worth it. Mm-hmm. And the first kind of criterion is we ask ourselves, can we live with the status quo? Like if nothing changed, will, will most people be all right? Like it's not a, that big of a deal. If it is all right, leave it alone. Then if it's not, it's like, okay. Then number two is, is what we're proposing going to be worse than the status quo? Or will it be better? Even if it's marginally better, is, is there some progress? And I think number three, when I finally pulled the trigger, it's really around if I, I sit and surmise and think about whether is what I'm proposing more risky than the status quo? Meaning that I think in many respects, the status quo, especially in regards to education, healthcare, the environment and the economy, for the majority of people in this country, the majority of people in color in particular in this country, is actually very risky to me. Like it's risky if we don't change. It's risky if we allow these inequities to compound and continue. That's what gives me kind of the willingness to be bold, not for boldness sake or not to be provocative, but to actually make it better because just the, I think we get too, we get too used to dysfunction. We right. get too used to we normalize it. Yeah, we normalize it. It's like we don't have to live like this. In the documentary, you wore a T-shirt that said, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. So I have to ask you, do you have any notions of running for president in 2024? In 2024, I'll only be 24 years old. Uh, 34, <laughs> excuse me. So I won't be able to run for president. And mm. if I was 35, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be running for president. But I am excited about spending the next four years in Stockton really kind of cementing 
what this film shows, which is the beginning of a process of change. And then in four years, I'll have, I will have spent, if you could believe this, 12 years in local government. So wow. times that by seven, because it's like dog wow. years, 84 years <laughs> in local government. <laughs> I think there have to be a conversation about what's next, whether it's in government or, or without. But regardless of what that is, I know at the baseline level, let's just create a society where everyone has a fair shot where everyone has an opportunity, where everyone has a chance. Because a lot of people think we live in that world, but we, we just don't, although I would love to get there. Well, I know the slogan, upset the setup. That's That's got to be the slogan when you do right. <laughs> oh, 100% upset the setup every day. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Mayor Tubbs. Thank, thank you. you, guys. That's it for this 10th episode of Brown and Black. Thank you to Mayor Michael Tubbs for being on the show. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe on any podcast platform and leave a review. Your help allows us to be heard by many more people. You can reach us on Twitter at Brown Black Pod or Instagram at Brown Black Podcast and on our new YouTube channel at Brown Black Podcast. See you next week on another episode of Brown and Black. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.